Welcome to the Impact of Educational Leadership Podcast with ID3 for Isaiah Drone III. Welcome again tonight, another impactful night of the Impact of Educational Leadership. This is episode 56. I'm your host, ID3 for Isaiah Drone III. Tonight's panelists are Buddy Thornton, Dr. Kimley McLeod, Bill Besson and Delna Bryan. Ladies and gentlemen, please say hello to the people. Howdy, it's good to be with you. This is Bill Besson. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. This is Kimberly McLeod. It's an honor to be here with my esteemed panel mates. This is Buddy Thornton. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, tonight's topic is how is COVID-19 impacting pro-social behaviors? The area in which an adolescent lives can easily determine his or her pro-social behavior outcomes in life depending upon whether the adolescent resides in an urban or rural community. The environment, in turn, may affect adolescent development and ultimately have an influence on their perceptions in adulthood. According to the United States Department of Education, the National Assessment of Educational Progress reported, the number of intervention programs have increased in education over the last four decades Environmental conditions do affect a child's commitment and attitude that are integral for seizing opportunities and healthy social interactions. Researchers have defined economically disadvantaged youth as negative pro-social conduits. And little information was found in the field of education that focused on concepts of traditional values by involving more people and modifying situational changes to provide effective settings and practices that support positive youth developmental needs. Tonight we will have a discussion. Another discussion about COVID-19 and its impacts on the world, its impacts on our government, its impacts on our institution, our family members, and ourselves. With tonight's topic being, how is COVID-19 impacting pro-social behaviors? Our first panelist tonight will be Mr. Bill Besson. Mr. Besson, please say hello to the people, sir. Hello, it's good to be here. So, so great to have you here again, sir. Uh, you're one of my favorites. <laughs> uh, well, with that being said, let me tell you a little bit about Mr. Bill Betson. Mr. Bill Betson is a youth advocate. He's a retired teacher and social worker and a great-grandfather. Graduating from the University of Dallas, he worked for 17 years in child abuse investigation agency, master's in science of social work. He then worked 11 years in open adoption work with Lutheran faith-based organizations and Catholic agencies before joining his lovely wife teaching in Dallas ISD. He's taught computer applications in Dallas ISD. During that time, he helped start the highly successful school time capsule project. You know, Mr. Benson, what you're doing in the community, sir, you are, you are a role model. You are the illustration of positive youth development. You've seen a lot. You've sacrificed a lot. You have tightened up those loose ends in the community 
that caused every person, every individual to get a fair shake. You've been inclusive. You've operated not just in love, but in diversity. I have a question for you, sir, and I, I want you to unpack it and just be transparent and give us your heart. And with that being said, why are microaggressions being triggered in American culture today? And we want to know, honestly, what are your thoughts? That's my question for you. Well, thank you, and uh, that's big. Uh, microaggressions have been a factor in our culture virtually always. Uh, adolescence pulls them out. Any feelings of desperation in a child can lead to them as they perceive themselves as needing to protect themselves or as a means of aggression, actually. So with the coming of COVID, the stressors became more intense in microaggressions. The, the opportunity for them became more intense, but they probably did so in homes outside of the site of teachers general. You may have heard that the child abuse hotlines are feeling more stress and that the suicide prevention centers are getting more calls. And that is true. Uh, COVID has done that as we have returned to our homes to help in avoid infection. And it has caused for child abuse to be more of an issue. Uh, and uh, those are much more than microaggressions. Sometimes they go far above that. And so, unfortunately, I do not have hard statistics, but I have read many, many articles over the last three months about the increase that has occurred in child abuse numbers, in suicide attempt numbers, in calls to the child abuse hotline, in calls to the suicide prevention hotline. So we have got to work on lessening the atmosphere for those aggressors. And the main reason to do that amongst adolescents, which is the age group I'm most familiar with, is we must help to give our adolescents a greater feeling of their own roots, of where they came from, of where their family came from, of where their culture came from, more stories from their own family about grandma, about grandpa, about great aunts and great uncles. The kids have got to hear that they are not the first ones to go through some bad times if they are doing that. They need to know that many people in their family and in their, uh, you know, the people who went before them endured some of the exact same things. Obviously, stories from the pandemic of 1918 will not have survived unless a family happens to have a good record system. But they need to know that this kind of thing has happened before. And so they can survive it and they will survive it. And then at the same time as kids are looking and building on their own roots, they need to constantly be planning for their own future. And that does not change in a pandemic. They still have a future. They still have to prepare themselves for it. They still have to be in school learning the methods and the abilities they will need to have to succeed in today's world. And so uh, those of you who may know me know that I'm describing the two major elements in the Time Capsule Project students learning about their history and their past and students every year writing down their updated plans for the future and so as, as we do that it will lessen the frequency of aggressive behavior microaggressions any uh, conflicts because as kids have a purpose the fighting goes down in school 
that happened at the schools we've done this project and it is obviously what we're trying to do children with goals don't act out as much as other children who are still struggling with their own goals in life and so that is crucial crucial and it's more crucial than ever now in COVID. Uh, the motivation of a child working uh, online to do their studies is more critical than ever. And hopefully over time, we will see this, you know, this method will become normal in our schools and we'll have more children uh, achieving more as things go forward. But uh, COVID-19 has been a test and it's continuing and it's not over with. If the projections I heard this evening of another 100,000 before the end of the year dying, more than that, I mean, that's, that's frightening. That is truly frightening in this country alone. And uh, hopefully those predictions will not come true, but we don't know and it will have more stressors on our students. You know, Bill, as I heard you talk, Mr. Betchen, you are a man of faith, but you can't get to faith without hope. Absolutely. You cannot get to hope without peace, and you cannot get to peace without patience. But all of those attributes are tedious. It is tedious to get to patience. It's tedious to get to hope. It is tedious to get to faith. But when you get to it, you can share it with someone like you did with us tonight. You know, you, you, you talked about the integral parts. The integral parts of social work is what I heard too that gives you or gives adolescents the ability to have healthy social interactions. And it's that influence that you spoke about that causes us to, to plan or teach our young people how to plan, how to decide, how to commit, how to act, how to behave, how to succeed. Because with those microaggressions, it's gonna be you know, the negative effects of microaggressions are either fight or flight. And I love the way you put that together. I love the way you synthesize and combine that information together because those are the attributes young people need to be pro-social conduits. And speaking of pro-social conduits, we have our next panelist. And Mr. Best, again, I just want to thank you so much for that response because it was it was it was on. It was bullseye. <laughs> it was bullseye. Thank you. thank you. Thank you, sir. With that being said, uh, our next panelist this evening is Dr. Kimberly McLeod. Please say hello to the people again. Good evening, everyone. I'm Kimberly McLeod. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Isaiah, for the invitation. Absolutely, absolutely. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Kimberly McLeod. Dr. McLeod has spent her professional career in public education. She has held various positions in the public school setting, including that of a teacher, a counselor, professor, dean, and administrator. She has presented her research and professional training nationally and internationally for over a decade. Her unique delivery style and research-based reflective and engaging has been presented in many facets, whether her being called on to be a keynote speaker or invited to speak to teachers, administrators, school board, trustees, and students in a number of districts, nationally and internationally. She's spoken for workshops and conferences. Dr. McLeod is the past president of the Texas Alliance of Black School Educators and the founding editor of the National Peer Review 
National Journal of Urban Education and has written eight academic books, three children's books, and over 12 empirical articles or peer-reviewed journals. She has been awarded Teacher of the Year by the College of Education at Texas Southern University and was selected as an award recipient of the YMCA Minority Achievers Award. Dr. McLeod is a mom to three high school boys. Their names, Major, Mitchell, and Micah. And she currently serves as the Dean for the College of Education and Human Services at Texas ME University Commerce. Dr. McLeod, you have a remarkable, remarkable track record in education, and we just want to thank you for all that you're doing um, in the community and at large. You know, with that being said, <clears throat> we're just talking about, you know, pro-social conduits, and, you know, which is another way of saying role models. And so my question for you tonight is, what role does American cultures play in influencing adolescent behavior, especially, especially during this awful, awful pandemic that we call the COVID-19 pandemic? Very good, thank you. And thank you for the uh, warm introduction and the opportunity to share with this esteemed panel um, of experts. I wanna come in the back door to that question because in your introduction, you said a couple of things that were very key and Bill Betson said some things that really stood out to me. And I wanna kinda come in and answer that question, setting that up as the, the preface. But you talked about pro-social behaviors, those that are displayed through sharing, donating, caring, and comforting. And you also shared that researchers have defined economically disadvantaged youth as negative pro-social conduits. And little information is found in the field of education that changes that status quo. And, you know, I have to say, all research is not good research. I don't know who or where, um, that research is coming from, but I do want to say this. And when we look at children who we say are economically disadvantaged, that don't have access to equity and don't have access to opportunity because of the amount of money their parents do or do not make or the resources in the community that they do or do not have access to, because they are economically disadvantaged should not also equate that they are negative pro-social conduits. If we look at how we define pro-social behavior, some of those which you express in sharing, donating, caring, and comforting, I think poor people can do those same kind of things. The question is, why do we look at it as being something negative from those that are low SES or social economic status? Um, and those that have a higher social economic status, it's good for them. Because children, even if they are adopted into a community that, let's just say, is, um, is viewed or defined as a negative contributor to society, even gangs show caring and show donating and comfort each other that are part of that family. So, you know, Part of what kind of, I guess, disturbs me and is the lens on how we see and how we perceive and then how we back that up by research. Because I would counter that with, I can, I can point out real life living examples with heartbeats in their bodies right now, pulsating blood that are poor, but also care. That people are poor, but they also know how to donate and comfort and be there not only for their family, but for their community. And our faith-based communities in low SES areas are great examples of that. You don't have to 
be at a high economic status to be able to display pro-social behaviors. And who gets to say that's a good behavior and that's a bad behavior? Who is the one that is a master and gets to say, I'm defining for you what is good and what is acceptable and what is not. The problem with that in schools, when we have that framework, this is normal, this is not normal, is those students who express how they care, how they donate, how they, they comfort, how they share, how they exhibit those, if it does not fit into the perception of what we value or what we understand, they're going to say it's negative. Because I don't like the fact that you don't know how to raise your hand and you just blurt things out. But if you look at it, who gets to say that's a bad behavior <laughs> or that's a negative behavior? And you're a negative conduit of pro-social behavior because you don't know how to fit into my pattern of understanding and my pattern of belief. And so part of that, respectfully, I challenge some of that because no one gets to say my way of being human is right and your way of being human is wrong. Who's the one that gets to define the right way for all humans to behave in every single type of cultural background or experience or understanding? And one of the things that Bill, Mr. Bill Betson shared in his comments, he said that children with goals don't act out as much as those who don't have goals. And one of the things that you said, Isaiah, after he made that comment was, it sounds like hope, and that's exactly what that is. When children have hope, hope biologically and scientifically has shown when people have a sense of hope, their brain develops. You see growth, you see movement. But when you don't have hope, when you don't have an exit, when you don't see a way out, when you don't know how to create a goal, the steps to achieve that goal from bringing it from a dream into reality, you start to give up. And so it's not only goals, it's goals are the conduit of hope. And it is hope that motivates, that inspires and moves and encourages and drives people to become more than where, what they are and in different places from where they are. And so giving that sense of hope to students, to families, whether they be black, brown, white, poor, male, female, multilingual, monolingual, when we are able to give that to other humans, then we are able to push the needle forward as it relates to developing a community that can create whatever this definition is of pro-social behavior. And so how does that impact American culture in influencing adolescent behavior? When we talk about adolescent behavior, one of the things that we have to come to grips in reality is that adolescents have very different developmental needs than adults. Teenagers are at a stage in life where they're interested in social connections and separating from their parents. <laughs> they're trying to identify their own identity. And with COVID-19, they don't have the same opportunity to, one, engage in live environments where they watch problem solving, where they watch how people deal with tension and create solutions for that. They don't have a chance to practice that, what they are modeling and what they are seeing. So everything that they're learning and they're taking in is based upon what is being fed to them through media or through virtual connections. And so when we talk about the American culture, I guess it, I mean, you know, even with that, what is American culture? <laughs> um, American culture in, on the East Coast is not the same culture as it is in the South or the West or in, on our partners in far North America and Canada. So how do we define what this American culture is? But whatever it is and however we define it and how we view that as positive or negative, all of that is being fed to our students, and they're trying to interpret and understand a world with an adolescent brain. They are, they are seeing news stories. They're seeing media. They're seeing coverage. They're seeing um, social justice campaigns. They're seeing George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. They are seeing this live, and they're trying to solve and understand adult issues 
with a middle school brain. And so you're going to see those challenges and you're going to see those struggles and it'll come off whether it is in person or in a virtual situation is, well, what's wrong with you? Why are you so upset? Why are you so angry? You know what? You are a negative conduit of pro-social behavior. And what I'm saying is sometimes they just don't understand, and that's where we have an opportunity to create equity, to create access, to create understanding through what we call an education. And education gives hope. Education is the key to social mobility. We can give them what they need. Um, how we shape that in a virtual environment, hoping that some students even have access to technology and internet and some type of interaction with the outside world. That part, I believe, is where the silver lining of COVID, and if there is one, is it's uncovered the digital divide. We know who. It has allowed us to see who our true have and have nots are in the education system. I'm not stop because I know you've got two more speakers after this. But those students who don't have access to the same materials and the same resources, the impact, lack of access, lack of resources, lack of social interaction because of COVID-19 is going to have a devastating impact in our communities, especially those that are in digital deserts, um, and as Mr. Betson said, that are, are really grappling with some pretty sophisticated and adult um, experiences that they just don't have the capacity to understand and process. The silver lining is our opportunity to do something about it. Thank you. No, 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 we thank you, you know. Your passion is so, so powerful. It's, it's nuclear almost. And you spoke to us on different layers and different environments. And it started, I believe it started on the external, external environments. And, it, and you brought it and you pulled the external environments to the internal environments through those layers. And, and again, that's tedious. Again, it's tedious because it's tedious to get the patience. You don't get where you've gotten not being patient. You don't get where you've gotten not having hope. You don't get where you've gotten not having faith. I like the way you talked about influences and how influences are seen differently through different lenses. I guess the opportunities within the environment more like, because if the environment is effective, then the facilities in the environment is also effective. You know, right before this episode, we had a trustee on, and he talked about the hotspots that Dallas ISD has been distributing throughout their district, right? And that inclusion that you were mentioning, that's that um, diversity, and that's that first shake that you were mentioning, right? And so, but then the teaching strategies are those effective practices you know fair people people that season like yourself those role models that can teach our kids how to be civically involved that civic involvement because like you said america is not a monolithic culture it's too vast it's too diverse it's this is a nation of immigrants i believe that it will always be a nation of immigrants you have three sons that you have to raise, have to oversee, have to make sure they make the right moves, that they're, they're navigating. So you are their GPS. You know, you're telling them, hey, this is how you go, but you're not, you're not, um, you know, controlling it. You're letting them grow and develop, but you are that voice. You are that wisdom that they hear. And so your response was powerful. Your response was passionate. And I want to thank you again because you brought a lot to this conversation. Thank you, Dr. Cloud. My pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and with that being said, uh, next we have on the panel uh, Mr. Buddy Thornton, soon to be Dr. Thornton. How are we doing today, sir? Well, we're doing great, Isaiah. Um, you put me pretty in a tough spot in his lineup uh, to follow uh, 
Bill and Dr. McLeod because uh, they are they are a tough act. I, I don't know if I would have preferred to have been the lead in, you know, but now I have to come up with something. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Buddy Thornton. Uh, he is the Positive Social Change Agent Pro agent, uh, resident of Phoenix, U.S. Navy, Vietnam era veteran, hospital corpsman. He's married 47 years, I believe now, uh, to his lovely wife, Sharon. He's a father for grandfather of seven, great-grandfather of seven. So I think this is like, what, the fifth generation? <laughs> it's a fifth generation family going on here, which is awesome, awesome. Uh, and I know he's going to correct me if I'm wrong, but I uh, bachelor's in allied health sciences, uh, university, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, uh, Masters in Human Services Counseling and Executive Leadership, Liberty University, Doctoral Learner, completing his dissertation at Grand Canyon University, go GCU, and Organizational Leadership specializing in cross-cultural competency and conflict management. His certifications are in mediation, paralegal studies, life, uh, parent coaching, and he is the proud owner of BCT Mediations Plus, which is A-rated on the BDD, and he's a keynote speaker, aspiring book author. His first book is in final edit right now as we speak, I believe. He is also, like I said, the branding agent of positive social change through effective coaching and mentoring focused on parent coaching and education, family dynamics, and also conflict management. He is a member of the advisory board of ParentFile, First Source Consulting, and SAGE. He's also Chief Operation Officer and Executive Board Member of Broken Institute Healing Foundation and member of Maricopa County Association of Family Mediators. You know, Mr. Thornton, you are the positive social change agent pro. I've seen you in the field. I've seen how you have went into hostile environments and neutralized situations that left people in awe. I've had some myself just jaw-dropping experiences seeing how you work just with kids. So you are a person that, again, knows about discipline, knows about commitment, and knows about being organized. And with that being said, you are what we call a role model. And so being the role model that you are and the positive social change agent pro that you are, what tools, what tools do role models need to produce or to have successful outcomes especially in hostile environment. Well, thank you for the uh, glowing intro, uh, Isaiah. That uh, was very accurate on the family side, and uh, they are actually, you know, some of the driving force of what has put me where I am today. It's really difficult to be in an environment where you get to see generation after generation circle around you and you get to see uh, with all the changes in the world and the digital age and everything that's happened, you can still go back to a very, very accurate markers of development and see that each child lives in a world of curiosity. Uh, my youngest great-grandson just turned one and, and yet when he is interacting with adults or the other children in the house, you can see when he stops and he focuses and you can see the little wheels turning and you, you know everything and everyone around him is an effective or ineffective role model. So when you start looking at role models, especially in, when you're dealing with hostile environments, whether that would be uh, uh, socially uh, uh, debilitating uh, situations or in uh, situations where we're dealing with COVID-19, uh, you have to understand that uh, for all practical purposes, the ones that really, really count, the ones that really need the role models are those who are not as developed as us adults. 
Children will look at everyone around them as a role model. But what they're looking for is they're looking for something that makes sense to their mental framework and what would fit inside their quality world. Regardless of what other people are doing around them, they are creating a quality world every step of every day, and that's something that we, especially as practitioners, need to be aware of. They are learning the good with the bad. They're learning what's up, what's down. And to really counter that and to explain it, I put together a, a working social justice role model framework uh, to share with the audience. Uh, it, it's really important to understand that the tools that you're asking about are really uh, the ability to show empathy. Regardless of who's around you, show empathy for their situation. Uh, practice active listening. It can't be about you. It has to be about them. And to do that, you have to actively listen. And that means you do not start to develop a response or an answer until you've actually listened, processed what they've said, and come up with clarity because they're going to take what you say and they're going to say, does this fit into my quality world or does it not? And when it fits into their quality world, they're going to put it there. And if it doesn't, on first blush, you may lose them because they won't come back to it. They won't circle back. Now they've already decided what does or does not fit, and you can't change that. You have to be willing to share ideas, but you also have to be receptive to them sharing their ideas. You've got to show them that you believe that they have not only the hope that was spoken about by the previous two speakers, but also that someone is going to support them in pursuit of their hopes and their dreams. It's, it's just, you know, there's no simple path, but being a role model is a constant 24-7 job. Uh, there are some uh, optimal modifiers for being a role model. Number one, you've got to work very diligently to set aside asymmetric power. Children are pretty sophisticated. They know that the adult in the room has all the power. But when you release that power, you choose not to use that power, and you get to them on their level, and you show them, you demonstrate to them that you're willing to listen to them and work on their level, they're going to embrace you, and they're going to bring you in, and they're going to feel almost relevant in a way that adults, we take for granted. They don't take that for granted. They feel like they have to prove they're relevant every day. That's why they do some of the things they do to get attention. We really need to develop a safe place mentally for just everyone. That means we have to limit blaming, shaming, judging, because what we want them to do is their mirror, mirror neurons are going to pick up on that, and they're going to understand that you don't believe that you need to blame or shame or judge. You just need to understand what has happened and move forward from there, make everything a learning experience. That's being a positive role model and not allowing social discord to enter into their quality world. Uh, you really need to project your what you con contribute to their quality world, good or bad. You have to accept that they're going to see the bad, and if you can say, well, okay, I made a mistake and this was wrong, now they're gonna, that's going to concretely sink that in as a role model specific, and they're going to realize if he says what he did was wrong, then it's going to be wrong if I do it. And it, it, it's very important. Uh, you have to really role model how adults handle bias, and some adults handle it better than others. Uh, in the coaching dynamic with families, I'm counteracting subconscious and implicit bias because that's stuff that a lot of people may not even be aware of. They are obviously aware of their explicit biases, the biases that they choose to act on. Knowledge of something, if they still act on it as a bias, then that's on them, and that's being a poor role model. So you have to really bake that into your, your recipe when you're trying to teach people how to be a role model. Uh, you, can't, you just can't get beyond making it as simple as possible. This is something that's ingrained in you. You're not aware of it. That's why it's called subconscious. But now that I've made you consciously aware of it, what are you going to do to offset that? Simplicity has to be the key. Everyone doesn't have the education that our esteemed panel has, but people will listen to you as an authority figure as long as you speak to them at their level and give them uh, the chance to understand at their level and put yourself at their level, which means you need to ask them, tell me about your world. Tell me about your quality world. I want to understand your world. And then as they tell you what their 
positives and their negatives are. Absorb their entire story. Take it to heart, absorb it, and don't interject your story into what you're doing to make them understand how to be a role model. And being a role model means that you're going to teach the two tenets that I call the, the anchors of being a role model. You have to be willing to invite inclusive participation in tough conversations. People shy away from tough conversations. Well, maybe we don't because we're professionals in that arena. However, when you try to have a tough conversation with somebody, a lot of times they're going to be pretty anchored on their position, and it's going to be difficult to get them off of that unless you can show them that everything that they're doing, they're projecting to other people, especially the people in their quality world, and how much damage or how much good are they doing. And so you get them to do a little introspection by allowing yourself to step out of the picture. You let their story come to fruition. And you have to encourage inclusive contributions to optimal outcomes. It's okay to challenge somebody as a role model. Says, how did that work for you? Let's explore together a better way to get it done. And over time, people who are committed to being good families, good social actors, exhibiting that pro-social behavior that you're talking about, those people will set aside the bad behavior in favor of the good behavior as long as you've made it sensible. If you don't make it sensible in their eyes, they're not going to understand and they're not going to adopt what you're saying. Role modeling is not just automatic. Yes, everyone is a role model, but but to be a specific good role model, you must embrace that everything you do, everything you say, everything you project is going to be absorbed by somebody else. So you are on cue right now. You're somebody's role model. Take it to heart. Thank you. You know, I can listen to you talk all day. I actually do in most cases. When you talk, I always leave our conversations with more self-esteem I'll always believe our, our conversations with more confidence you are a master builder everyone I've seen you come in contact with everyone that I've seen you touch you build them up I wish I could mention some of the students that we've worked with their names but you know who I'm talking about I saw how you took the young man and you you build him up so that he began to ask about you. Where's Mr. Buddy? You got on this child's level. This child is maybe 12 years old. That's the impact of education. That's the impact of leadership. That's the impact of a role model. <laughs> Thank you, sir, for your response. And you bring so much to this podcast, sir. And I, I love you for it. I love what you're doing. Love your family. And just keep doing what you're doing. I, I, I promise you, the world needs you. We need you, sir. We need all the panelists. I, I'm so, this next panelist, I do not want to cry. I'm not going to cry. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say it. I know people, uh, you know, have been maybe wondering. She is like a mother to me. When she tells me to jump, I ask, how high? <laughs> With that being said, the Honorable Delna, Miss Delna Bryan, please say hello to the people. Good evening to one and all, my esteemed colleagues on this panel. I am grateful to be here. Go ahead, Isaiah. Absolutely, absolutely. Sorry about that. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about the Honorable Miss Delna Bryan, activist and educational advocate. Ms. Delna Bryan, now in her 40th year in teaching and educational consulting in the United States of America and chairs for the Political Action Committee, PAC for short, former vice president of NEA Dallas, teachers affairs, past president of NEA Dallas for educators and paraprofessionals. She served on two committees for Delta Kappa Gamma 
and the National Scholarship Committee for the Eula Lee Carter and on the Oversight for Human Resources Committee. Bachelor's degree from Anderson College. I'm going to say this, she was the first recipient of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Scholarship there. Uh, Masters from University of Southern Mississippi, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and a Masters of Arts in Teaching from the University of Granada, Granada, Spain. She has become the who's who among America's master teachers. Have her here tonight. So, so, so proud of her. Love her to life. And with that being said, I'm going to ask you a question and I'm going to get out the way. <laughs> uh, my question for you is, what role is the 2020 elections playing as it relates to pro-social behaviors in America? I'm humbled by all that you said. The 2020 elections is not going to have the that some people think it might have on pro-social behaviors. Whatever they are putting out in the press, I think they have it wrong because I'm seeing something differently. There's going to be a lot of positive, helpful behaviors coming out of all this rhetoric about the 2020 elections. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a sociologist. I'm speaking from the premise of an experienced teacher. My observations are coming from being an educator around the globe, speaking to former students. I'm seeing and hearing more about some of them actively getting involved in the elections but generally, this is not what they publish in the newspaper because it's not gory enough. It's not bloody enough. These young people are not sitting the elections out. They are doing something that is totally different to the norm. I know of a group of Dallas ISD 20, 23-year-olds who have gotten their younger cousins involved, they form a coalition and they divided the city in quadrants. And even during this endemic pandemic, this storm that we are having, they go knock on doors because they are convinced that everyone must vote. They're knocking on doors and talking to people in South Dallas, West Dallas, in Pleasant Grove, all over the city, and leaving literature that they have printed out of their own pockets about why it's crucial to be registered to vote in the 2020 election and why people must vote. One told me, this was a 24-year-old, that they were tired of hearing minorities talk about being disenfranchised. They were tired of some of the rhetoric that they were hearing and they were setting out to make some changes. This same little genius decided that he would call some schools in Dallas ISD and talk to the principals. He knows about parent conference nights. And he asked two principals if they could speak, if they could have a Zoom virtual meeting and they could speak to the parents about voting, about the census. 
because they understood the game that was being played. The census was supposed to finish in October. Then it was moved by the powers to be to end in September because this person wanted to campaign the month of October, but luckily a judge told him that could not be done. So these young people are fearful that not everyone understood them what is going on in this 2020 election and they have a totally different approach to the social norms. I have read about another group. They're 17 and they volunteered to work the primaries. Four of them, four friends, and they fell in love with it. They're going to take the day off and they are going to work the polls. They understand that some people are afraid they might not go to the polls, but they think that them showing the courage to do what they need to do will cause more people to get involved. Know that it's not what they are putting the negativity in the media that we should be following. We should be encouraging our young people more who talk about doing things and doing things differently. I teach a whole gamut of different races, different colors, different ethnicities, because they're coming from different places in America. They're all Americans. Some are South Americans, some are Central Americans like myself, some are North Americans. But they understand that this 2020 election in the United States is being watched around the world. I could not get them to stop talking about the debate on Tuesday night. It was a debate in my classroom about that debate. So know that the behavior is changing. It has changed. The tides have changed. We are not going to see the same old, same old and the behavior of the young people coming up. All we have to do is encourage them. We have been there, we have been standing in their shoes somewhere else at a different time, but we have a little more experience so we can see a little farther beyond. Let us encourage them to do the positive, the helpful, the volunteering, the different things that they have set out to do to make this election a different game plan. Thank you. Wow. Miss Delna Bryan, when I heard you speak, when we heard you speak, the first thing that came to my mind was legacy. Next thing that came to my mind was experience. And just like Mr. Bill Betson, just like Dr. Kimberly McLeod, just like Mr. Buddy Thornton, I too heard hope. I heard, I heard hope when you spoke about our adolescents, our children, our future. I heard love. I heard so much love. I heard so much covering. I heard so much truth. And it was righteous. It was so righteous. We need to unite as a country. 
With that being said, this night has just been absolutely brilliant. And it's been a great awakening. And hopefully it has been an awakening to many young minds. With that being said, I would like for the panelists to share a story, a personal story, uh, you know, keep it under two minutes though, <laughs> but about unity and what does unity mean to them? Who wants to go first? Hi, Isaiah. It's Kimberly McLeod. I'll go first. Um, one of the primary goals I had when I was president of the Texas Alliance of Black School Educators was to teach what policy and advocacy means to teachers. And a lot of times teachers, we're so committed to our work that how legislation is passed down to us, we're not always savvy on how it's getting done, what impact and influence we have in trying to get it done. So I created what was known as the Texas Education Policy Institute, which is in its third year, uh, going on our fourth year of, of uh, being in existence. And then the message I shared with our members and our team was, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And our community has been on the menu far too long. And it's time to get off the menu and take our rightful seat at the table for equity, equity um, and opportunity for us so that we can create that for our students and our community. And I'm saying all of that to say in closing, after that first year of fellows that we trained and we had a partnership with PEA -E and SBOE, um, from that, two of our members um, are now elected officials. One of them serves on a school board in the Houston area. Another one serves on the State Board of Education representing the Dallas-Fort uh, Dallas Worth area. <clears throat> year two, we wrote a, um, a rider and attached it to a bill for one and a half million dollars to spur some research for urban and rural school communities on um, the academic impact our students have and what we can do about that. It passed the House, it didn't pass the Senate. Um, but we learned from that, and that's only after two years. <clears throat> In year three, we had the, um, the chair for the Senate and the House, um, not the House, the Senate on the Education Committee. We had other representatives on the House side. I'm saying all of that to say when you talk about unity, it's realizing that there is a need, organizing those that have like minds around that need and creating the momentum that gets our community off the menu. Now, because of where our members are and what they've learned, they are inviting us to sit on statewide committees. They're having an influence on what's being passed at the board level as it relates to student code of conduct. That's what unity can accomplish when we come together. Thank you. Very well said. You mentioned equity, and equity is the main story I have been watching for the last decade. And back in 2015, I was part of a team of 15 people who filed a formal federal complaint against Dallas ISD for supplanting federal funds. Let me explain what that means. It means basically they were denying equitable treatment to the high poverty, usually minority students in Dallas ISD. We did a study back at that time of the funding by school, which is very hard to do. But when we compared the basic high poverty schools with the low poverty schools, we found that regular education funding went up as much as $2,000 per student in the schools that were not high poverty. In other words, they were getting more of the local tax dollar per student. But you go to the high poverty schools, and some of them were getting as much as $2,000 less per student. And the reason that is a federal complaint 
is because they were using the high poverty funds, the Title I funds, the English as a second language funds, and basically need-based funds to make up the gap in funding with the high poverty schools. And that is supposed to be supplementary funding to make up for the deficits. It's not supposed to be filling in the basics of the regular funding. We filed a complaint. It, three years, it basically disappeared and was closed by the Trump administration. Uh, so we, that is where we're staying now, but we still need to have the transparency. And the transparency can only be achieved with a single spreadsheet that has all the schools on the same spreadsheet in each row and all the columns with all the sources of funding from all the different sources so we can immediately see if any schools are getting disproportionate amounts of regular funds. And that should be there easily every year and it's something we've been fighting on. So that's our story in the battle for equity. And we're continue the fight this day to have that level of equity every single year in the school budget in Dallas for all 230 schools. And uh, that's a story that is ongoing. It is noble. When I talk about unity or when I think about unity, I am thinking about teachers uniting to find strategies to better educate the students wherever they might be, whatever social economic group they're coming from, whatever their zip code might be. As the president of Delta Pi, the local Delta Kappa Gamma group, I looked around and found out accidentally when I was reading AP exams in Cincinnati that I just might have sisters elsewhere, not only in Texas, but across the nation. I put up a sign about our uniting the sisterhood and before I knew it, yes, I had sisters in almost every state of the United States. And some, because Delta Kappa Gamma also has the organization in 17 foreign countries. That night we sat down and we talked about what do we have in common? We all have students. We're all going to unite. How can we better the quality education that we're giving these students around the globe? I'm proud to say now I can call my friends in New Jersey or my friends in Spain or my friends in Italy or whatever, wherever they might be. And we can talk education. We can talk about how to better the educational system during this endemic pandemic that we're having. Things are not the same. They're not going to be the same. This is a different reality. But we have united as educators, as teachers, as professors, for the love of the child, the love of the student. That's my story on unity. One of the things that I work on the most is how to create positive cultures in the classroom. And a teacher came to me from uh, the Roosevelt School District here in Phoenix and she said, I'm having a really tough time because I've got two types of students. I've got really fully engaged, really intelligent, 
superior students and then I've got a group of students who simply just either don't get the concepts or they've given up hope. They don't understand, you know, what they need to do to be successful and so they're, they're losing hope. And so we sat down and we devised a, a plan to unify her classroom. And what we did is we, we did a dyadic pairing across the, the room. We put an A student with a failing student. We put a student who was outgoing with an introvert. We made sure that we made every pair be a very, very amorphic dichotomy. One of them was powerful and one of them was weak in some way, shape, or form. And then we incentivized the class by saying all the progress that the weaker students make in whatever domain they're weak in, uh, for every 10% that they go up, the better student is going to get a bump in their grade uh, toward honors or toward whatever incentive they chose, but they had to define it before they could start the, the, the program. And some of the smarter students balked at working with the other kids, but at the end of the day, they all made a decision about, okay, this is what I'd like, this is what I'd like, and the teacher bought off on all of it. And we watched them over a six-month period. And at the end of six months, three things happened. Number one, there were no weak students in the class. Sure, there were some students who were lesser than other students, but there were no weak students in the class. Two, the incredible bonds that were created between the stronger and the weaker students. A, got the stronger students to understand that everybody's not just like them, but everybody deserves a chance. And the weaker students all learned that as long as someone can stand by my side, I've always got room for improvement and I've always got someone encouraging me. And what we found is that the smarter students spent as much time enjoying encouraging the, uh, the or other students as we did. It was, it was a fantastic experiment in socio sociology of how to get people to engage at a level that they're uncomfortable with. At the end of the day, the next year we got a report from three or four teachers who got these new incoming students asking if they could just voluntarily work with some of the other students. There is hope for the next generation. They all, they all get the message, but we have to put it out to them and make it fit their idea of what a quality world is. And that's my story. You know, tonight was a night of sharing. It was a night of passion. It was a night that we were able to comfort people that are in distress and to love on them and, and care for them. This was an impactful night of the Impact of Educational Leadership. This is episode 56. Our panelists tonight were Dr. Buddy Gordon, Dr. Kimberly Cloud, Mr. Bill Betson, and the Honorable Miss Delna Bryant. Good night. Welcome to the Impact of Educational Leadership podcast with ID3 for Isaiah Drone III. This show was designed to provide an exclusive forum on educational achievement gaps related to learner success while discovering relationships and family issues in a diverse setting. 